following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Let's imagine this following scenario. We're here Sunday morning. We are preparing for worship. It's a few minutes before 10 o'clock. And without any kind of advance notice or warning, two gentlemen walk in the back of the church. They've got white shirts and black ties and name tags. And they walk up and one sits down and the other one comes right here to this pulpit and opens a book, it's not the Bible, and starts to read and teach from this other book. And and here's the types of things that are being said. He's teaching that uh, we human beings are the same species as God. We were born from God and one of His wives and we were sent to earth so one day we might achieve divine status. Okay, Or maybe this. Maybe there's a small group of folks come in the back door and they represent the Watchtower Society. And they're handing out um, some material. And then they also would come right up here and without any asking permission or anything, and they, they start to, um, to speak and teach... But here's the types of things they're saying. They're saying that uh, Jesus is not really God. God created Jesus, and then Jesus created everything else. And they continue on speaking on these topics. Now, would anybody be a little bit shocked? Or maybe caught off guard? Or maybe uh, even upset? Okay. What would you do, though? Would you stand up and attempt to come against that that was being said or taught? Would you try to stop them from doing that? Or would you say, hey, I've got my Bible here. Let, let me tell you the truth. What would you do? How would you respond? If someone were to do that, if either one of those two groups or or any other group for that matter, what would you do? How would it make you feel? Or would you possibly be in this mindset? I want to say something. I know that's not right, but I don't know enough about the Bible to stand up and, and say anything. I'm not confident enough in my command of the Scriptures. I know that doesn't sound right, but maybe somebody else will stand up and say something. Because I know, I know that's wrong, but, but I don't feel confident enough in my own abilities, and my own knowledge, my own uh, experience with God's Word to actually put a stop to this. Welcome to the Colossian church. 
they heard the gospel. They were um, converted through the preaching of the gospel, the truth of Christ. Now they've got these false teachers that have come into the church and they're leading them astray, but apparently no one in the church is confident enough or willing to take a stand and, 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 and plant their feet and square their shoulders up and say, hey, this is, what, this is the truth right here. This is, what the, this is what the Bible is. This is what God says. That, that stuff you're talking about, that's not, that's not the truth. This is the truth. So, let me just tell you how that happens. And I really need, uh, if you're tempted to kind of zone out or, or not pay attention, I, I need you to hear this right here. We're about to read this passage of Scripture, talk about Jesus, but I need you to hear this before we go any further. This is how, it's, it's, I just coined a phrase this week. Made it up. I've never heard anybody else use it, so I'm going to claim it as mine. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and that's okay. But here, here it is. Ready? Hereditary heresy. It's even, it a, must be a Baptist term because it's alliterated. It starts with an H. Hereditary heresy. Here's how it happens. One generation will hear a preacher say something from the pulpit. They will not be a good Berean and they will not examine the Scriptures to make sure these things are so, but the preacher said it. So I believe it. So that generation incorporates that belief. They teach it to their children. The next generation grows up believing this truth, whatever. This so-called truth. And... They've, not, they've also not opened the Bible. They've also not verified these things or so. They've not examined the Scriptures. So they believe, their whole life, they believe this certain principle. And, and on and on until somebody has the presence of mind to say, you know what, why don't we open the Bible and let's see what the Bible says. And then all of a sudden, perhaps after several generations, someone will say, well, I'll be. I, I was wrong. I, I had no idea. I just, I, I've believed this all my life. I've heard this all my life. My great-granddaddy told me, and he's trustworthy, and, and so on down the line. But no one ever bothered to open the Bible and say, well, let me see what the Bible says about that. See, the Bible leads us to our beliefs. And our beliefs are confirmed or not by being a good Berean. Do I need to read those couple of verses again? Let me do that. Acts 17, verse 10. I read it at the beginning of the service this morning. The brethren sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. So they received the word. They were eager to hear it. 
Then it says, they examined the Scriptures daily to see whether or not these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. You know what that means? They examined the Scriptures and they found them to be true. So the preaching matched the Scriptures, so they believed. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me so far? Here's what I want to say. Before I read these, these uh, verses here, before I read this passage, I want to say this very clearly. I want everybody to hear me. I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. And it's going to be on video, uh, live stream, so we can go back and, and verify exactly what I've just said. Don't you dare ever say to another person, well, the preacher said it, so, I, so it must be true. Open your Bible. Don't, I, I will never in my life, I would sooner die than lead you astray on purpose. That's never my intention. I want to tell you the truth and nothing but the truth, the whole truth. But don't take my word for it. You open your Bible and you trust the Word of God. Don't, don't trust the Word of the preacher. Because the preacher is a sinner just like you. And the preacher can mess up. Not meaning to, but can. You trust what God says. We all have to trust what God says. And our beliefs have to be based on what God says, not what the preacher said. Okay? Does that make sense? We trust the Word of God to determine what we believe. And by the way, that would... That would fix a whole lot of debates and, and issues. Okay? We trust the Word of the Lord. We do not want to perpetuate hereditary heresy. Because that's how it happens. Alright. Now, having said that, let's read the Scripture for today. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. The supremacy of Christ. Here's what the Bible says. Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this down. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation 
under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray You would speak very clearly to our hearts. Help us understand. Help us obey. We pray this for Your glory. Amen. So, just as a quick review from the last two verses from last week. God the Father did some things and He used Jesus to do it. So if you were to look in your Bible back to just two verses to verse 13, you'd see three things God the Father has done for those who believe in Him. He has qualified us to share in an inheritance. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. And He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. A change in citizenship. And all three of these things that God has done are in the past tense, which is really important. They're done. God's work of justification is accomplished at your conversion. When you trust in Christ, you are justified in the eyes of God. You are rescued You are qualified and you are transferred. You have a change of address, change of citizenship from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Now, this portion here of Colossians, one commentator, Curtis Vaughn, he he called this a loftier conception of the person of Christ than is found anywhere else in the writings of Paul. You want to see a beautiful picture of Jesus. This is it. This is it right here. And so what I'd like to do is to look... This, this passage, just, uh, it's, a, it's a really, really long sentence. But what I want to do is I want to highlight these... There's six things in here about what Christ has done. So I want to highlight those, but I want to highlight them with a view toward, okay, what should we do because of that? Because Jesus has done some things... And we need to celebrate what He's done and praise Him for what He's done. But there's also a response that is then uh, expected from us because of what He's done. Okay, So so there's things He's done and we should respond to those things. So I want to take those one at a time. and, And it just paints this beautiful portrait of Christ. Number one, Christ is God. That's primary. Jesus Christ is God. He was God in the flesh, but He's always been God. Okay? He's the, uh, it's, the text says the image of the invisible God. That word image is beautiful. It's, it's a perfect symbol for us in the English language. You know what the word is? Icon. That's the Greek word. Icon. Image. He is the image. So when you, have, you want to see what God looks like, what, what's the symbol, the icon for God? It's Jesus. That, that's who God is. So uh, He's the image of the invisible God. So the invisible has become visible in Christ. And through Jesus Christ, God is revealed in all His fullness. He's the firstborn of all creation, meaning He is the agent through which creation came to be. So because Jesus is God... Jesus was not created. He is God. So He did the creating. Does that make sense? He didn't have to be created. Because that would make Him a created being, which would make Him not God. But He is God. 
Jesus is God. You know how I know that? I'm glad you asked. Let me give you some references to look up. Uh, you can look at later, and, and you can just jot them down if you want to, if you'd like to do that. John 8.58. John 8.58. Jesus said, Before Abraham was born, I am. John chapter 10 and verse 30. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Pretty straightforward, right? John chapter 14 and verse 9. Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Very, very convincing, very clear. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Father and Son, Jesus is God. And if that were not enough, you could go back to the very first verse in the Gospel of John, John 1.1. 1, 1. It's a very familiar verse, very well known. But it loses something when you translate it from Greek to English. Because in English, John 1.1 1, 1 reads like this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? You've heard that verse? You know what John 1.1 1, 1 reads like in the Greek New Testament? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. See, that the word order in Greek is different. And it's important, and it's intentional. Because in John's Gospel, the very first sentence he was inspired to write was to say, God is the Word. So there could be no misunderstanding. Jesus is God. God is Jesus. They're the same. The second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus Christ is God. So what do we do with that? Surrender. We surrender. Because Jesus is God. Number two. Christ created you. Christ created you. This is in verse 16. So, Christ is God. And number two, Christ created you. So when you look at the second verse, verse 16, you see, for by Him all things were created. Now, the word... Uh, by Him is literally in Him. So in Him, by Him, Christ created you because you are included in all things. So when you read verse 16, you might think, okay, for by Him or in Him all things were created. Well, if you just stop right there, maybe you're not sure exactly what all that entails. Is that uh, Does that really mean all things? And by the way, that phrase... Um, is repeated over and over. All things. All things. You'll start to see that in this paragraph. By Him all things were created. Well, if we want to know what that means, we just keep reading. Both in the heavens and on the earth. Well, that's a lot of stuff, right? In the he- Everything in the heavens. Everything on earth. I'm on earth. That, that includes me, right? So I, Christ created me. He created me. So I could stop there and say, okay, both in the heavens and on the earth, but that's not all. It says visible and invisible. So that means things I can see, things I can't see. You know what that means? Spiritual world. God created. That means, listen, everything 
whatever spiritual powers may be in existence, they're all subject to God because He created them. If they exist, He created them. There's There's nothing that exists that was not created by Jesus. So, visible and invisible. Then, after that, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, doesn't matter what it is, look at the last part of 16, all things have been created through Him and for Him. So in Him, by Him, through Him, for Him, Christ created everything. And by the way, uh, right before this paragraph, in case we were wondering, we wanted to make sure that this is indeed talking about Jesus. Um, Another thing that was lost in the English translations, when you read the, the last part of last week, He rescued us, God the Father, because it says we're giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance. He rescued us. We're still talking about the Father in verse 13. He rescued us, and He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So the end of verse 13 is the first time the Son is mentioned, right? So just follow the context. Verse 14 says, In whom? The Son. In whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin. So now 14 is talking about the Son, right? But you know what? Verse 15, it's a new paragraph, but it's a continuation of a thought because the literal Greek New Testament says, who is the image of the invisible God? So if you were to read it all together, it would sound like this. He, the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom... We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible God? So verse 15, start, you see the English says He is. But it's talking about Jesus because it continues from verse 14. Who is the In whom and who is. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the one by whom all things were created. All things have been created in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, for Christ. This is our God, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord. He created you. Number three, Christ sustains you. So not only is He God, not only did He create you, He created all things in general and in particular, and He sustains you. Christ sustains you. There's that phrase again, all things. You look at verse 17. He, Christ, is before all things. You know how He could be before all things? Because He's God and He created everything. He's before all things. In Him all things hold together. So when we see who He is, He's God. What He's done, He's created you. He sustains you. That's a present tense, continual action. Christ sustains you. Three of the verses I already mentioned from the Gospel of John. John 1.1, John 8.58, John 10.30 all speak about Jesus being before all things. In the beginning was the Word, God was the Word. Before Abraham was born, I am. I and the Father are one. See, we can't believe God is eternal and not believe Jesus is eternal because Jesus is God. Does that make sense? Jesus is God. He sustains you. In Him all things hold together. So the end of verse 17 is talking about that other verse I mentioned. 
Hebrews 1.3. Because if we kept reading Hebrews 1.3 about He's the exact representation of His nature, the radiance of God, if you keep reading verse 3 in Hebrews 1, it says He upholds things, everything. He upholds all things by the Word of His power. Jesus upholds all things. He sustains you. You know what that means? This is really good. All of creation, whether they recognize it or not, that's a key ingredient, even if they don't recognize it and acknowledge it, all creation is indebted to Jesus. Everything. Well, I don't believe in God. Doesn't matter. You're indebted to Christ. Well, I don't believe the Bible. Doesn't matter. You're indebted to Christ. He created you. He sustains you. The, he causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. The sunlight, the, the, the star, the moonlight, every, everything. Common grace. You're indebted to Jesus whether or not you even believe in Him. The, all of creation is indebted to Christ. So what do we do with that? Surrender. That's, that's the theme. See, we're, we're looking at what this passage teaches about who Christ is, what He's done. But there's a response. Christ is God. So we should surrender to Him. Christ created you. So we should surrender. Christ sustains you, we should surrender. Number four, Christ has raised you. Christ has raised you. Verse 18, He, Jesus, is also head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Christ has raised you. So by virtue of His death, burial, and resurrection, He is the head of the church. Do me a favor real quick, just, just for a moment. Find a hymnal in front of you. Turn to page 350. Don't worry, we're not going to sing. Page 350. You should see a song entitled, The Church's One Foundation, written by a man named Samuel John Stone. You know what the first verse of that song says? The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His New creation by Spirit and the Word. From heaven, He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood, He bought her. And for her life, He died. Won't you see all those pronouns in there? She is His new creation. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. 
with His own blood, He bought her. And for her life, He died. See, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We're here. There are um, human uh, aspects of leadership, to be sure. But Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And the moment we forget that, things start to go off the rails. See, because it doesn't matter. All right, I have a I have a a um, a place of service. I have a role to fulfill, a calling to follow, and so I'm trying my best under God to do that. And it, we all have a calling. We all have uh, a, a place of service to fulfill in the church of Christ. But if we don't all get behind this principle, Jesus Christ is the head of this church. So if, if, we don't, if we don't remember that, then we're going we're gonna to mess up. Jesus is the head of the church. And so, myself included, all of us, we are trying to follow Him. Follow, that's what Paul himself said, follow me as I follow Christ. As if to say, hey, if you want to follow me, that's great, but you just make sure I'm following Jesus because you're really supposed to be following Jesus. So if for some reason I veer off and am not following Jesus, don't follow me. You should keep following Jesus. Right? Which, which by the way, is why I don't want you to trust what I tell you. I want you to trust the Word of God. And in as much as I tell you what the Word says... And you can look down and say, yep, okay, I see it right there. Then great. Believe me. But we're all trusting in God's Word, not the preacher's Word. I, I can't say that enough. We are all dependent on God's Word. He has raised you. Ephesians 5, 25-27 talks about how Jesus died to sanctify His church and present her to Him blameless, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Christ is also the beginning of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead because He defeated death by His resurrection. He showed what would happen to those who follow Him. Raised. Raised to new life. That's why we, that's why we baptize the way we do. His resurrection gives Him the preeminence in all things. You see that? You see that in verse 18? So that, that's that subjunctive verb again in the Greek New Testament, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. That means He is preeminent, first place. Here's what it means. Supreme. That's the title of the message. The supremacy of Christ. He is above everything. He's first, and there's no close second. Jesus is first in everything. Number five, Christ has reconciled you. Verses 19 and 20, all the fullness of God dwelled in Christ. This is one of the most difficult verses in this whole passage because it's... Uh, you might see the word Father in verse 19 in italics. That means that it was supplied by the translators. It was not in the original Greek, and it's not. 
If you look at the Greek New Testament, verse 19, here's really how it reads. The fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in Christ bodily. Which means, everything that God is, is in Jesus. Everything. And, and it was, it was the, the, the pleasure of the deity to manifest itself in Christ. So, everything about Jesus is God, and it was pleasing to God the Father, to God the Son, to the Holy Spirit. The Godhead was pleased to have Christ come and dwell on the earth and be God in the flesh. It was all part of God's plan, and it was pleasing. So, being that all the fullness of God dwelt in Christ... That's how He was able to offer Himself as the perfect sacrifice on the cross and be a sufficient payment for the ransom that was due to redeem man from sin. God has reconciled, look what the text says, all things. Verse 20, Reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. In Acts chapter 17, in the same chapter I was in earlier, down in verse 30, the Bible says that God has fixed a day where He's calling on all people everywhere to repent because He's fixed a day when He's going to judge the world in righteousness through a man He's appointed. And He's given evidence by raising Him from the dead. See, God's going to, Jesus is the judge that God's using to judge the world in righteousness and He's given us proof, evidence of that because He, he raised Him from the dead. So that's the the judge, the mediator. Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, and it's the man Christ Jesus who gave Himself as a ransom for all. It's a means of liberation. Christ has reconciled you. So what do we do with that? Surrender. You see the theme? Christ is God. Christ is created you. Christ sustains you. Christ has raised you. Christ has reconciled you. And all of those things are leading us to the same conclusion. What do we do? Surrender. Surrender. Finally, number six. Christ keeps you. Christ keeps you. You have the statement of justification when you get saved, when you trust in Christ and you are declared righteous before God. You've been justified. It's a declaration of righteousness, past tense, when you get saved. Sanctification has a kind of a dual meaning because it means set apart for God, but it also has a progressive sense in which we are being sanctified. We're being made more and more like Jesus every day. So it's a process. We're being made more righteous. So it's present, continual. And reconciliation to God through Christ changes our standing before God. We, we relate to God now in a different way. Look what the Bible says. Verse 21, Although you were formerly, that's a great word, formerly alienated, hostile in mind, in evil deeds... Yet, verse 22, He has now reconciled you 
in His fleshly body through death in order to, a purpose, to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's a, a, a beautiful Greek word right there, beyond reproach, because here's what it really means. Free from accusation. Holy, blameless, free from accusation. So, so here's what that causes us to think and to know. What kind of church is Jesus coming back to get? This is important. Does being a Christian just mean, well, you believe in Jesus, then you just go back to just live however you want to live? In, in theological terms, that is known as cheap grace. And actually, it's just a, a complete misunderstanding of what grace is. Grace is not a license to live how you want to. It's the freedom to live how Jesus wants you to. Somebody ought to write that down. What kind of church does Jesus expect? Holy. Blameless. Free from accusation. That's the kind of people that, that Christ died to re- redeem and, and sanctify. He, he, he's making changes. In it. See, if we were already like Jesus, we wouldn't need to be changed. We wouldn't need to be transformed. We're not like Jesus. That's why we are being sanctified. To become holy, blameless, beyond reproach. Perseverance in the faith is critical. Look at verse 23. If indeed. That's, that's how it starts. If indeed. So, so the, the end of verse 22, present you before Him, holy, blameless, beyond reproach, if. If indeed you continue. That's perseverance. If you continue in the faith, firmly established, steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, the gospel that you heard, the gospel that's been proclaimed in all creation, the gospel that Paul became a servant of. The the word there in verse 23 when it says, the very end, I was made a minister. The word minister is translated. It's really diakonos. It's it's where we get our word deacon. It, It means servant. Paul was made a servant of the gospel. If you continue in the faith, the true believer must continue in the faith. But the the true believer will continue in the faith. So, what do we have as a, a summary? Because we just said Christ keeps you, so what do we do with that? Surrender. Surrender to Christ. See, Jesus Christ is God. He created you. He sustained you. He raised you up. He reconciled you. And He keeps you. So, What do we do in all that? Surrender. Surrender to Christ. 
I promise you, there is no other option available to us that is as good as that. There's no other plan. There's no other um, method or um, something that we can devise, some way to get to heaven, to have a better life, to have a better future, to have forgiveness of sins. There is no other option better than this one. Our, Our culture screams at us to be independent and do whatever we want and follow our hearts and all this other nonsense. None of that is as good as surrendering to Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.